two years after the murder of a beloved Staten Island school teacher shook the borough to its core, husband Michael Camarada has been sentenced to 23 years to life for second-degree murder, while the fate of his alleged accomplice continues to hang in the balance. You show no emotion, you were devoid of sorrow, devoid of any remorse or regret, inexcusable, cold, calculated, chilling, cowardly, disgusting, despicable, cruel, and heartless. So in the same way you decided Janine's fate, now I have to decide yours. Welcome to the Staten Island Advances from the Scene, a podcast bringing you an inside look at the biggest stories on Staten Island with the reporters who cover them. I'm your host, Eric Bascom, and this week I'm joined by Staten Island Advance courts reporter Frank Donnelly to discuss the trial of Michael Camarada, who was recently found guilty of murdering his estranged wife, Janine, back on March 30th, 2019. Thanks for joining me today, Frank. This has been a major story that we've been covering at the Advance for over two years now. For some of our listeners who may be unfamiliar with it, let's start at the beginning. Can you bring us back to spring 2019 when the story first broke and kind of what we knew at that time? Sure. So what happened was um, initially this was a missing persons case. At least that's the way the police were investigating it. Janine Camarada, she's a school teacher, PS29. This was on March 30th is when she was uh, killed, uh, what prosecutors proved in court. However, on April 1st, she was supposed to uh, show up for a a court appearance in a matrimonial case. She had just filed divorce papers against her husband, Michael Camerata. She didn't show up. There was concern about her whereabouts. Her boyfriend couldn't reach her. He reached out to a, a girlfriend of hers. She tried to reach her, couldn't reach her. Obviously, they got concerned. They eventually called police. So the next day, April uh, 2nd, uh, police got involved, and then they began the missing person investigation where they reached out to, I I believe, a relative of Janine's who uh, gave him a connection to Camarada's girlfriend, Aisha Ajia, uh, who he lived with in in Far Rockaway, Queens. The police contacted Ajia. They eventually found out that Camarada worked at a post office on Varick Street in Manhattan. They went and spoke to him, and then as the... uh, investigation progressed. They started as a missing persons again, trying to find Janine's whereabouts. But things that both of them, uh, Ajia and Michael Camerata were telling them, didn't add up. Police, uh, especially police, were checking it against toll records, phone records. Their whereabouts didn't add up. And then uh, what happened is Michael Camerata got arrested, not not for uh, Janine's disappearance, but he told the cops that he had hit her during an argument they had on the night of March 30th, he allegedly said at her home in, in Staten Island, which police said couldn't have happened based on the various um, toll and, and phone records. And then what happened is a few days later on April 4th, they found Janine's body, uh, charred body, was put in a, in, in a storage unit that Michael Camerata um, had rented out on Arden Heights. And then from then, within within a couple of weeks, they, they indicted both uh, Cap- Michael and uh, Aisha Gina for... Uh, for murder and manslaughter and concealing a human corpse, etc., And then the case proceeded from there. Right. And so this was back in 2019, as you mentioned. So there was more than two years between the time of the murder and the start of the trial. You know, as someone with a great deal of expertise in these types of criminal investigations, you cover this kind of stuff all the time. Is that a typical timeline? And, and can you just give our listeners kind of a feel for what investigators are doing during that time period? Yeah, I mean, it's it's typical in, uh, in the sense because a lot of times it takes two years for a case to go to court. 
I mean, during that time, I mean, they indicted Michael and Aisha G within about two weeks of their being arrested. So during those two weeks, the, 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 basically the, the, the police are, are lining up all their ducks. They're making sure they have a solid case because once you charge someone with, with murder, you, you don't get a second bite at the apple. You, you have to go at what you have. And if, if you don't have enough evidence, then, you know, you're going to you lose. So they did that during that time. But really what, what takes it two years to go to court is that there were so many um, court proceedings that happened in the interim pretrial, things like uh, suppression hearings of, of evidence, things of that nature. So for two years isn't necessarily a long time. And especially during COVID, when there weren't a lot of at least a year or so where there was few, if any, trials. Uh, because of the, the logistics of having a jury come in, keeping people spaced out in court and so forth. So, no, the, the fact that it took all, over two years to go to trial wasn't uh, unusual at all. And act, actually, it was, in a sense, kind of kind of relatively fast considering, you know, the, the, the COVID issue. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. So let's move on to the trial itself. I mean, you were there for a lot of it. You were in the courtroom listening to what people had to say on both sides of it. So I'm curious kind of just what that process was like and, and what they had to say, really. What did prosecutors claimed happen and, and what did Camarada's lawyers have to say in his defense? Yeah, well, I mean, the, the prosecutor's case was basically this, that Janine goes to out to Queens to meet Michael Camarada and, and his girlfriend, Aisha Gia. She and Michael have two children in common. That that's Janine and Michael. They live with Michael and Aisha Gia. So she had gone out there to talk to him because two days before, she had served him with divorce papers. And what prosecutors say is that, based on on Michael's interview with with police, that he was enraged because she was asking for a, a lot, uh, you know, a good portion of his salary. Uh, and earnings for child support and, and uh, alimony. And, you know, I, I guess it's a bargaining thing. You know, you, you first file divorce papers, you say, oh, I want this. And then that's that's a negotiating point. So anyhow, uh, they said that that he was enraged. She goes out to meet Michael and Aisha. They, the two of them, Michael and Aisha, get in the car with Janine and they drive to a, a location, a dead end street near where uh, Michael and uh, Aisha live in Far Rockaway. And they say Michael's in the seat next to Janine, who's driving. Aisha G is in the back seat. And they say at some point, as they're sitting there on the street, a fight happens and that Janine gets killed. The defendant wanted her dead. On the night of March 30th, 2019, Janine Camerata is in her car at the defendant's apartment at 133 Beach 56th Place. In Queens, New York. Two days after the defendant, her husband, is served with divorce papers. Timothy Richard is a member of the district attorney's office. She's in her car with the defendant and the defendant's girlfriend, Aisha Jim. Janine got into that car on her own, but she's taken out of that car by the defendant in a bag. And they claimed that Michael killed her in, in concert with Aisha G. So they said that both of them together were acting together. Once she's killed, um, this video showing Michael walking across into his uh, apartment complex, coming back out with a, a shopping cart and black bag. And then later, you can see him and, and Aisha G walking back to the apartment with the, with the shopping cart. You can see there's something heavy in it. They get into the apartment. You see them coming up an interior staircase up to their apartment. He's lugging the 
shopping cart up the stairs, step by step by step. And then the next day, you see them coming out of the apartment and then going down those same stairs with the cart, with the big bag. And then they say what they did is then they then drove down to South Jersey, where they apparently met somebody that Ajia knew, somebody with whom she had a, a child in, in common, and that the, the body was burned down there. And then Michael and Aisha drove it back up to Staten Island, where on April 1st, they put it in the storage unit in Arden Heights that uh, Michael had rented. And then three days later, the police find it. So that was the prosecution's theory. Michael's lawyer, Mar Mario Gallucci, his, his theory was that Janine suffered three blows to the back of the head. And he said since Aisha was sitting behind her, she was the one who um, dealt her the blows. I believe you're going to hear the evidence that the reason that the body was put in the storage unit was to figure out. I'm an attack. I don't know what to do. I need time. But unfortunately, unbeknownst to him, he didn't have that time. Because Mr. Gia, behind his back, tells a friend you can hear evidence gratuitously that he killed Janine and you could find the body in the storage unit. Defense attorney Mario Gallucci. Your job, though, is to hear the evidence and make a decision on what happened in this book, in this murder mystery, in that car. Who had the opportunity? Who had more to gain from Janine's death? We'll be right back. The Mayor of Maple Avenue is a powerful multi-part podcast about Sean Sinisey a victim of former Penn State football coach Jerry Sandusky, who was arrested 10 years ago for numerous child sexual abuse charges. The podcast series is written and hosted by Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter Sarah Gannam, who takes listeners into the world of addiction rehabilitation, where society can be quick to celebrate the consequences for abusers while not addressing the needs of their victims. Subscribe now to The Mayor of Maple Avenue wherever you get your podcasts. Ultimately, as you mentioned, the jury found Michael Camerata guilty of second-degree murder as well as some other charges. What was the jury's deliberation process like, and how long did it take them to reach a verdict? It was, it was quick. They, they reached the verdict within three hours, and, and that included time which they had had lunch. And, uh, you know, they asked for a couple of things. I, I believe they asked for um, there was a tape showing the car, although it was very difficult to see anything. It was, it was taken from a, an apartment building far away. They asked for an explanation between murder and manslaughter, and, and they had asked for one other thing. And, and so it was, it was very, very quick. So obviously they felt pretty strongly right from the get-go that, that he was guilty of murder. 
Yeah, and it seemed as though the prosecutors did lay out some pretty compelling evidence, as you mentioned. So about a month after that guilty verdict, Camarado returned to court for sentencing, where he received 23 years to life for second-degree murder and uh, some additional years for those other charges that we had mentioned. On what was, you know, understandably a very emotional day for everyone involved, what was it like inside the courtroom there? Who who spoke and, and what did they have to say? Janine's uh, sister spoke, um, you know, and, and she spoke about the loss and how difficult it was for her family and that certainly, you know, Janine didn't deserve, no one deserved the, to, to, to have that kind of a, a, a death. My family's life has forever changed. Janine's three kids are still learning to live without their mother. One of which who had just turned three years old at the time, two months prior, as he was too young to remember her. Christine Ross is Janine Camarada's sister. Though they have pictures and reminders of her, it is not the same as an actual hug or kiss from their mom. I still do not know how to console our grieving mother, who has already been suffering from depression. She doesn't like to go out anymore, work, or talk much. You know, Camarada, he, he never admitted doing anything to her, but he just said he was sorry for what happened to her, that nothing, that it shouldn't have happened to her. And then the judge, Judge Mary Matei, really kind of laid into him. Far enough worries in the thesaurus to describe what you did and your reaction to it. What you said and how you said it. The blameless, as you're trying to contend today, is not one of them. You showed no emotion, you were devoid of sorrow, devoid of any remorse or regret, inexcusable, cold, calculated, chilling, cowardly, disgusting, despicable, cruel, and heartless. Justice Mario Matei. So the same way you decided Janine's fate, now I have to decide yours. You asked me in a letter for a just and fair sentence, and several times, you asked me to be able to start your sentence and go upstate. So now today, I will gladly accommodate you for all your wishes. Accordingly, on your conviction of murder in the second degree for the killing of Janine Camerata, your sentence is an indeterminate sentence of 23 years to life. You know, just, just told him that it was a, you know, it was a despicable thing and a cowardly thing that he did. And he hit him with the 23 years to life for murder. And then he got other time for concealing a human corpse and uh, evidence tampering. So it, it was it was pretty, you know, it's pretty emotional, um, as it usually is. And, and, um, and prosecutors, uh, you know, also said that what he did was cowardly. And he spoke, Camarada. Sometimes defendants don't speak because, you know, it, it, it's always when they go for parole, it's, 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 a, it's a consideration down the road by the uh, parole uh, commissioners. But he spoke, and, and, and again, he said he was sorry for what happened uh, to her. Yeah, and so I'm curious, as someone who's covered, you know, hundreds of court cases over the years, how do these kind of high-profile murder cases compare to some of the other things that you might cover? Is it any different inside the courtroom, outside the courtroom, more media there, less media there? How does it kind of compare to just, you know, a standard day in court? Well, it depends. I mean, in some cases, you do have a, a lot of outside media Others you don't. A murder trial obviously usually is, is going to take a little longer than other trials. Sometimes you might get spectators. There were a couple in this trial. 
you know, so it's, it's I, I don't know if it's a more charged atmosphere, I would say, but sometimes the testimony is, is very compelling, you know, especially if you have witnesses who, who saw something or say, you know, I heard, I heard a shot or I heard, uh, uh, or I saw, uh, you know, somebody do something. And then sometimes they'll play a phone call, like in this case, they played a phone call that Camerata uh, made from jail to one of Aisha G's uh, daughters, a, 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 an older daughter, in which he basically, she asked him, why, why did you put the body in the storage bin? And, and he said, uh, well, I was trying to, to figure out what to do with it. You know, he had basically admitted to her, you know, what had happened. And that, that was a crucial piece of evidence, uh, you know, in, in the case. Yeah, absolutely. And so... We've touched on this already, but uh, can you give us a little more insight into the alleged involvement of Michael Camerata's girlfriend, Aisha Gia, and kind of what comes next for her? Because she is going to be uh, tried as well. Is that correct? Right. Yeah. So she she is actually going to be back in court on December 9th. Prosecutors made her an offer that if she pleads guilty to first degree manslaughter, she'd get a sentence of nine years in prison plus uh, five years post-release supervision. You know, if she goes to trial, she's going to be facing murder charges, murder, manslaughter, and, and the evidence tampering and the the concealment of a human corpse. So it's they allege he, uh, she acted in concert with Michael Camerata. So the fact that she acted in concert, you know, means that maybe not necessarily that she had a she inflicted the fatal blow, but she was there, that she was involved in in, in everything that happened. So that's that's what they're saying that she acted in concert and that she had a she played a a, a role in everything that happened from the murder right through the, uh, the 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 evidence tampering. She has to weigh whether or not it, is it worth the gamble to to go to trial and if you get convicted of murder, you can get you know up to twenty five to life or or take uh, the manslaughter off of which you know it's a nine year sentence and that's that's what she has to cons- that's what she has to consider. Yeah, well, it has been certainly a very interesting case for us to follow over the years, and we are very lucky to have you there for us covering it. So thank you so much for coming on today, Frank. I really appreciate it, and uh, I look forward to having you back on the pod again soon. Sure. Thanks a lot, Eric. I appreciate it. Did you know the first attempt to document the borough's history, titled A Brief History of the Settlement of Staten Island, was published by Reverend Peter Van Pelt of the Reformed Dutch Church in Port Richmond in 1818. Thank you for listening to the Staten Island Advances from the Scene. If you like what you've heard, please make sure to rate and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit silive.com for the latest on all these stories and more. Thank you for supporting local journalism.